Chapter 4 of The Romance of Modern Electricity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Peter Mosier. The Romance of Modern Electricity by Charles R. Gibson. Chapter 4 What is Magnetism? One Magnet's Strange Behavior Towards Another. How a magnet is affected by a neighboring electric current. A magnet that will attract and let go at will. What takes place in a piece of iron when magnetized. Experiments that go to prove an interesting theory. From our childhood, we have all had some knowledge of magnetism in connection with the compass needle, and no doubt many of us gained further knowledge from magnetic toys presented to us to enable us to become expert anglers. In any case, it is scarcely necessary to remark that a magnet attracts iron, or that a light magnet, balanced upon a pivot, will have one end or pole pointing north and the other south. There is a third and a very remarkable property of magnets, a simple one and yet one that often leads to confusion. Every magnet has, of course, a north and a south-seeking end or pole, and these two ends are usually brought close together by making the magnet in a horseshoe form in order to have the attractive pull of both poles combined. It is more convenient for experimental purposes to make the magnet in the form of a straight bar so that the effect of each pole may be examined by itself. In order to distinguish the poles, it is customary to mark the north-seeking pole with the letter N, or to paint that end, or mark it in some way, so that it is quite easy to discern the north pole, while the plain end is, of course, the south. If the north pole of a bar magnet be brought near to the north pole of a magnetic needle, pivoted upon a stand, the north pole of the needle will fly away from the north pole of the bar magnet, but the south pole will come round and be attracted. The south pole of the magnet and the south pole of the needle will also repel each other, but the two unlike poles will always attract one another. This is certainly very strange. The poles all look exactly alike, and they will all attract iron equally well, but their behavior towards each other is so different. The norths will have nothing to do with the norths. The souths are equally repellent to one another but a north and a south are always attractive to each other. It is most important that the true facts of the case should be impressed upon our minds. Many years ago, in delivering a popular lecture, I had demonstrated these simple facts experimentally, and to my way of thinking, the matter seemed quite clear. But when the chairman, who was the possessor of several university degrees, made some remarks in proposing a vote of thanks, I got quite a big surprise. He said that personally he had gained a great deal of information from the lecture and that it was remarkable how little outsiders knew about these matters. He had not even known till then that a magnet attracted iron with one end and repelled it with the other. Needless to say, the remark was decidedly disappointing, but a brief repetition of the experiments served to show that a magnet attracts iron equally well with both poles and that the repulsion only takes place between two similar poles of two magnets. I have often observed this misunderstanding during conversation, and quite recently I find the author of a widely circulated book going astray on this same point. If two north poles repel each other, 
how then is the north pole of a compass needle attracted by the north pole of the earth? In point of fact, the end of the compass needle pointing to the north is of opposite polarity. But it would be confusing to call this north-pointing end a south pole, although the Chinese and the French have done so. We prefer to call it the north-seeking pole, or, in short, the north pole. But it must be remembered that the true meaning is the north-pointing or seeking pole. One does not see any magnet in the modern mariner's compass, as the compass card itself is pivoted at its center and has a number of small magnets fixed to its underside, so that the card itself takes up the correct position, indicating the different cardinal points. In this way, there can be no confusion, as was sometimes the case previously when an inexperienced person could not tell whether the painted or the plain end of the needle was the north-seeking pole. If two bar magnets are used together, having the two north poles and the two south poles respectively touching each other, then a more powerful magnet is the result, as one would quite anticipate. If, however, the relative position of the magnets to each other be reversed, so that a north pole and a south pole lie in contact at each end, all trace of magnetism disappears. One cannot now even lift a small iron nail with these two magnets, but when separated again, they are each just as attractive as before. We have almost ceased to wonder at this strange fact, but it is nonetheless remarkable for that and it will be seen in the subsequent chapters that this peculiar behavior of these magnetic poles to each other is of the very greatest importance to us in practice. While the early experimenters had been able to make magnets by rubbing pieces of iron with a natural magnet or lodestone, and while they also had observed a piece of rubbed amber attracting light bodies to it, there is doubt if it ever occurred to them that there might be any connection between magnetism and electricity. Later on, the idea did become definite, and during the year in which our late Queen Victoria was born, 1819, a Danish professor, Hans Christian Orsted, found that a magnetic needle, when brought near to a copper wire carrying a current of electricity, behaved in a strange fashion. The magnet found the wire of more attraction than the north and south poles of the earth, so that it would no longer act as a compass needle while it remained in the neighborhood of an electric current. If the magnet is placed above or below the wire, the magnet will swing round and take up a position at right angles to the wire. Whether the north pole of the magnet comes out to the right hand or to the left hand depends upon the direction in which the current is flowing in the wire. In the accompanying photographs, a magnetic needle is first shown standing at rest in the neighborhood of a copper wire, in which no current is flowing. In the second photograph, the wire is connected to the battery, so that a current of electricity passes along the wire, and the effect of this neighboring current is to cause the magnet to turn round and take up a position at right angles to the wire. In the photographs, the little magnet has a round paper disc attached to each end, in order to show its position more clearly. Footnote. In passing, I would commend this method to any chance reader who is accustomed to lecture in physics. I recently saw a very beautiful experiment in one of our universities, completely spoilt owing to a lever being so fine that its movements could not be seen at any distance. A small disc cut from light tissue paper would not have hampered the movement of the lever and would have enabled the audience to follow its eccentricities 
with ease. End of footnote. For the present, it will be sufficient to note that if we send the current along the wires in one direction, the north pole of the needle swings out to the right hand, and when we send the current in the opposite direction, the north pole of the needle turns out to the left hand. The needle and the wire may be fixed in a vertical or upright position, and the result is the same. If, instead of a single wire passing above or below the needle, the wire be continued round and round to form a coil, the result is greatly enhanced. This exceedingly strange attitude of the magnet towards the electric current is of immense importance to us, as we shall see later. After this connection between electricity and magnetism had been discovered, experimenters would naturally wonder if the current had any effect upon iron that had not been magnetized. Very soon, a French scientist, François Arago, was able to show that the wire carrying an electric current did affect small filings of iron. The filings each appeared to become a little magnet, and if a quantity of filings was placed in a glass tube and a strong current was sent through a wire wound around the tube, the tube of filings became quite an appreciable magnet. If a piece of soft iron, instead of a tube of filings, was placed inside the coil of wire carrying a current, the iron became quite a powerful magnet, but as soon as the current ceased in the wire, the magnetism disappeared too. If one takes an ordinary kitchen poker and wraps an insulated wire round and round it from one end to the other, whenever the two ends of the wire are connected to a battery, the poker becomes a powerful magnet and will support pieces of iron, such as keys, scissors, nails, etc. As soon as the current is stopped in the wire by disconnecting it from the battery, down tumble all the objects, for the magnetism has vanished from the poker. Here we have a most useful kind of magnet, which will attract or let go at will. And such magnets, or electromagnets, are of the very greatest importance to us in telegraphs, telephones, dynamos, motors, etc. Electromagnets are made of soft iron, but if hard steel were substituted inside the coil of wire, the steel would be much slower in replying to the influence of the current, and when the current was stopped, it would be found that the magnetism remained, and the wire could then be removed. The steel magnets thus made are called permanent magnets, to distinguish them from electromagnets, which are merely temporary. The magnetic needle in the compass is, of course, a steel magnet, as also were the toy magnets of our youth. Iron, like all other substances, is built up of very small particles, called molecules, which are so exceedingly small that they are far beyond the reach of the most powerful microscopes. Of course, we must magnify these molecules immensely in our minds when we think of them, no matter how small we try to picture them. Each of these molecules of iron is itself a tiny magnet, having of necessity a north and a south pole. In the iron, these are all lying higgledy-piggledy, the pole of one counteracting the pole of another, so that no trace of magnetism is found in the iron. It has already been shown that a magnet inside a coil of wire will turn round and set itself at right angles to the coil whenever a current of electricity is passing in the wire. Therefore, each molecule in the iron core of the electromagnet will behave in the same fashion, for each molecule, being a tiny magnet, will turn round and set itself at right angles to the wire, with its north pole in one direction 
and its south pole in the opposite direction. All the combined north poles of these midget magnets, now acting together, produce a very effective power of attraction, and also do the united forces of the south poles. Thus, at the one end of an electromagnet is found a north pole, and at the other end a south pole, no matter whether the magnet be a straight bar or bent in horseshoe form. It is quite reasonable to suppose that in hard steel these tiny molecules are so firmly bound together that when the current once gets them turned round, they cannot readily swing back again, in which case we have a permanent magnet. On the other hand, in soft iron, the molecules will reply much quicker to the controlling current, but will only remain with their north poles all in one direction as long as the neighboring current holds them there. As soon as the current is withdrawn, they swing back to their normal, higgledy-piggledy condition. Footnote. It is not necessary to suppose a real topsy-turvy condition, for if the tiny magnets were forming complete magnetic chains or rings, the absence of any outward effect would be just the same. End of footnote. One may imagine the turning on of the current to be, in military parlance, the command of ice front to this regiment of molecules, the withdrawal of the current to be the stand at ease or stand easy. If this generally accepted theory of magnetism be correct, then one can foresee what will happen if a so-called permanent steel magnet be raised to a red heat. As its molecules will be set in rapid vibratory movement, they will be given an opportunity of freeing themselves from the artificial position into which they were forced by the effect of the electric current. This exactly corresponds with what does take place, for no trace of magnetism is found in the permanent magnet when it has been thoroughly heated. For the same reason, one must be careful not to knock these steel magnets about for by hammering them one may assist the molecules back to their normal positions. Strange to say, when a piece of iron rod is magnetized, it becomes longer and thinner, but this is quite in keeping with a turning movement provided the molecule is of irregular shape. The metals nickel and cobalt are also magnetic substances, and indeed it appears as though all matter is more or less magnetic but iron stands out head and shoulders above all other materials in its magnetic properties. It has been found possible, however, to produce alloys of copper, manganese, and aluminium, which have proved much more magnetic than nickel and cobalt, though falling far short of iron. It is quite possible to magnetize a piece of steel by the Earth's influence, if the metal is placed in a definite position in relation to the magnetic poles of the Earth and then hammered in order to give the molecules an opportunity of getting into position. Steel railings, after standing for many years in one position, have often been found to be quite appreciable magnets, as also have steel rails of a railway track. End of chapter 4